Father, we just thank you for your goodness to us. And, and as we embark on this new book of 1 Peter, Lord, it's so relevant to the times in which we live in. Uh, times where, Lord, we, we can expect persecution. We, we live in a, an enemy territory, Lord. We live in a hostile world. And, and uh, we should expect difficulty in this life. It, it shouldn't surprise us when tough things come our way. And so, Lord, I just ask you today to just, just, uh, just bless this study, Lord, just, just to encourage us like Peter wants to encourage us through this book, that no matter how difficult time, the times are, that, Lord, you've chosen us, you're with us, uh, you're going to see us through by your power, and we can just relax in that, Lord, as, as, as we go through the things of life that we have to bear. Uh, bear with, with great joy, we're going to learn, Lord. So just teach us uh, the lessons that, that uh, you have for us, that you spoke through uh, the, the disciple Peter, and we just ask that uh, we can learn these and apply them to our lives here. Lord, we just ask that uh, in the name of Jesus Christ, and it's his, his precious name that I pray, amen. So we're going to start in 1 Peter today. We'll, I'm sure we'll go to 2 Peter after that, maybe uh, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude. And then we're going to, next thing is Revelation. But uh, I don't know if we'll head there or not. I, th- I think if somebody was telling me today they were listening to our, our study in Revelation, it was back in 2007. I usually try to do at least 10 years apart. So, so maybe we'll, it might take us a couple of years to get that far though, but but we might go back to the Old Testament, do uh, second, first and second Kings, and uh, then maybe come back to Revelation. We'll see. We'll let the Lord lead it. But anyway, we're heading to First Peter today, and and uh, I've entitled the series on First Peter: Pilgrims Living in a Hostile Land. Uh, and that sounds pretty foreboding, doesn't it? I mean, pilgrims living in a hostile land. But if you think about it, as Christians, that's who we are. We are pilgrims. And we live in enemy territory. This world, if you hadn't realized it yet, is at enmity against God. This world hates God, and more and more so, even in the United States, we see this uh, hatred of God, and especially of Jesus Christ. You name the name of Jesus Christ in in the public of of the United States of America now, and you're going to be persecuted. And, and that's kind of the way things were in Peter's day, and, and actually worse than that, because they were dying for their faith. And so he writes this word of encouragement, and, and, and he's going to encourage them to endure. And he's going to tell them that, hey, you have every reason to, to find joy in your difficult times. And, and so uh, really, First Peter, even though it's written for difficult times, it's a very, very encouraging book, and you're going to see that as we go through it. So, so let's dig into the book, and, and before I go into a book, I usually like to do uh, a short introduction, and, and we'll do that, and really the introduction will apply to 1 Peter and 2 Peter, but, but first of all, whenever you do an introduction to a book, you, you talk about who the author is. You try to, scholars try to figure out who the author is. Well, let me ask you, you scholars, who's the author of 1 Peter? Man, y'all are good. I mean, that solves a lot of issues. But you know what? There is a great debate over who wrote First and Second Peter. A lot of scholars don't believe that Peter wrote Peter. And the reason they don't believe that is because they believe the Greek is way too sophisticated for a common, ignorant fisherman 
like Peter. That's the way they see Peter. Well, I got to tell you what, those of you who have read the Gospels and who have been following along through, through the years, we've talked a lot about Peter, and Peter was anything but common. I mean, that guy was not common at all. I mean, he walked on water. Is that common? I mean, he walked on water. He, he saw the Lord transfigured up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw the Lord hanging on a cross. He saw the Lord resurrected from the dead. He met the Lord. The Lord actually cooked him breakfast after he was resurrected from the dead. Is he common? No, he's not common. Is he ignorant? No, Peter, despite the fact that he always stuck his foot in his mouth, the Bible says Peter not knowing what he said. The Bible says that every time he spoke, not knowing what he said. He still was a very articulate man. I mean, he was so articulate, remember, that by, through the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he preached at Pentecost, and thousands of people were saved. And so Peter, you know, Peter was anything but common, and he was anything but ignorant. Peter was a very wise man, and you're going to see this in the theology of this text, because his theology uh, stands right up there with Paul's theology as far as how the depth of the theology that he, he's going to teach us. So, so uh, we're going to learn a lot from this book, and, and I certainly believe that Peter wrote it. Now, one of the reasons you might have a problem with the Greek, if you go over to chapter 5, uh, look at verse number 12, chapter 5. And just hang there for a second. Verse number 12. He says there, as he, as he concludes his book, he says by Silvanus, or Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider, I have written you briefly. You understand what he's saying right there? He's saying he used Silvanus to write this book. That tells me that more than likely Peter dictated the book to Silvanus, who is, that's a Greek name, by the way. And Peter, who was Hebrew, probably dictate, dictated it in Hebrew, and Silvanus wrote it down in Greek. And so that could account for the sophistication of the Greek. But in any case, uh, uh, you know, I'm really not that concerned. Uh, I'm certain that Peter wrote this book. I, I, one thing we can be sure of, we can be sure of the integrity of Scripture. If it says Peter wrote Peter, and if you look at the very first per verse there, it says, Sin it, says back to, it says Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That's the writer. And, and since it says that, I know that Peter, the apostle, Peter the disciple, wrote this book. Now, how do I know that? How do I know that? Because I know that every word of this Bible is true. Now, how do you know, Pastor, that every word of this Bible is true? Because the Spirit in me tells me that every word of this Bible is true. You know, when you, one of the things that happens when you get born again, you know that you know that you know that this word is true. Before that, you might have had your doubts. And I say to people who tell me, well, you know, that's just your opinion. No, it's not just my opinion. I say to anybody that will come to this word, and you'll come to this word and you say, Lord, I'll submit to whatever you teach me in this word. If you'll submit to this word, you'll receive the Spirit of God, and you'll know that you know that you know that this is the word of God. So I don't have any doubt that Peter wrote the epistle of Peter. All right, now... As far as the setting of this book goes, and it's important because it raises some issues. And, and so we want to look at the setting for a minute. And when I talk about setting, I'm referring to two things. 
I'm referring to the audience. Who did he write this book to? We want to look at that because that's important. And also, where did he write it from? I mean, where was Peter when he wrote this book? Some of you, and I'm not picking on Roman Catholics, some of you in here might still be a Roman Catholic. But where do the Roman Catholics believe that Peter was when he wrote this book? Just guess. Where was he at? Who was Peter? To the, if you, those of you who have been Roman Catholic, he was the first pope, right? And so where do they believe he was when he wrote this book? He was in Rome. He, but Peter finished his life up in Rome. Uh, and, and so they believe that he was the first vicar of Christ, the pope leading the church from Rome. And, that, and, and so if that was true, then you would expect to see that somewhere in Scripture, and they believe that you do see it in 1 Peter. So the place of authorship is important. But first of all, let's look at the audience. Who was he writing to? Well, you see it in, in the first chapter of the first, in the first verse. Listen to what it says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia, Asia and Bithynia. So that's who he was writing to. He was writing to, the, that word dispersion in the Greek is the diaspora. Have you ever heard of the diaspora? Diaspora simply means scattered seed. And so to the Jew, what the scattered seed meant, those were the Jews who were taken captive in the Assyrian and Babylonian captivity hundreds of years before this. And then they had settled in that land and they had actually, their descendants had actually stayed there And so there were several Jews scattered throughout these various provinces that he lists right here. So it could mean the the, the diaspora. And and Peter, if you remember, Paul said, I've been given the apostleship to the Gentiles, and Peter's been given the apostleship to the Jews. And so it would make sense that he would be in that area uh, teaching uh, the word of God and, 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 and giving the gospel out of that area. So so that would make sense. But also, I think, because he says pilgrims there, when he talks of pilgrims, who's he talking of? Is he talking of the Jews or is he talking of the church? He's talking of the church. And so I think maybe there were a lot of Christians who had fled to that area because there was a large Jewish population, a a lot of Christian Jews who were being persecuted by the Jews in Jerusalem and in Palestine, and so they had fled there. And then a lot of them had, had gotten saved, and so there was this large presence of Jewish Christians in these areas, and so it would make sense that, that that's who he was writing to. All right, now, the place of authorship. That's what I want to go back to here for a minute because it's very important. Go back to chapter 5 and look down in verse number 13, and he's going to tell us where he was when he was writing this letter. He tells us. He says, She who, verse 13, she who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. She being the church in Babylon. He was in Babylon when he wrote this letter. Now, does that mean he was in Rome? Or does that mean he was in Babylon? Well, you can't actually say that he might have been in Rome because we know that in Revelation we're told that there's a mystery Babylon. And that mystery Babylon, more than likely, I'm not going to go into the study of that right now, but more than likely that mystery Babylon is Rome, the same one that, that mystery Babylon that John referred to 
uh, in the book of Revelation. And that's what most Roman Catholics believe, that he was writing from Rome. Uh, They believe that Peter was in Rome, and he was the first pope, and uh, they make that case. One of the places where they make that case is from this verse, that Peter was in Babylon, uh, and he was writing to these various churches uh, throughout the Roman Empire. All right, now, where do they think Peter got his authority to be the pope? And, 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 and we want to look at that, for, explore that for just a second. If you go over to the book of Matthew and look in chapter number 16, and you remember the story, Jesus had asked his disciples, he asked them, who are people saying I am? Uh, and they said, well, some people are saying you're Jeremiah. In another place, he says, some people are saying you're Isaiah. Some people are saying you're Elijah. And Jesus says, well, who do you say that I am? And remember, Peter made that great statement. He said, you are the Christ, the Son. Blessed are you. He said, you are, you, no, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I mean, he just blurted it out. And Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. But now listen to what Jesus says. And this is where the Roman Catholic Church believes that Jesus got his authority uh, to be the Pope. Listen to what it says. And it almost sounds like it if you take it on its surface. Look at verse number 17 of chapter 16 of Matthew. It says, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you, you are Petra which is Petros in the Greek, and that's important to to note. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And it almost sounds like he's handing this authority over to Peter. He says, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, here's the problem with that interpretation. There are two words for rock there. Peter's name does mean rock, but it's an entirely different word. Petros and Petra are two entirely different words. Petros, and, and, and they're, they're totally the opposite. Petros, Petros means little stone. just like a little stone you would pick up and throw. Little stone. Petra means giant rock or cliff. In fact, there's a city in Jordan this cliff city called Petra. Some people believe that's where the Jews will go uh, during the time of the Great Tribulation, and that's a possibility. We'll talk about that at Daniel this Wednesday night. But, but uh, he wasn't, Jesus wasn't saying at all to Peter, you're the rock on which I'm going to build my church. He wasn't saying that at all. What he was saying, you're a little rock, Petra. You're, a, you're the little rock, Pet, Petros, rather. You're the little rock, Petros. And upon this Petra, upon this cliff, upon this great rock, I will build my church. What's the great rock? The statement that Peter made, that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That's the great rock. I mean, that's the rock. Who is the rock? Who is the foundational stone of the church? Jesus Christ is the foundational stone. So he's the rock. And so on the rock, I will build my church. And then when he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound on heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. He was giving that 
privilege not just to Peter, but to all the disciples. He wasn't just giving it to Peter and his disciples. He was giving it to everybody in the church, all of his children. That power was given to us. If you want to check that out, you can go over to John chapter 20 after Jesus is resurrected, and he tells the, his disciples that you have the power, power to whatever you bind will be bound and whatever you loose will be loosened. He says the same thing, and he says it to all his disciples. So that power was given to all of us. It wasn't just given to Peter. Now, there's no evidence whatsoever that Peter was ever uh, or ever had anything much to do with the church at Rome. Who founded the church at Rome? Well, that, that would be my first guess too, but how was the, first the, church, how was the church at Rome founded? you remember? You remember at Pentecost, these believers came from all over the Greek, uh, Roman Empire, and they came to Pentecost, and, the, and some of them were Roman Jews making that pilgrimage to Jerusalem, and they, uh, during Pentecost, and they heard Peter preach at Pentecost, and they got saved, and they went back, and they founded that church. Now, it was Paul who nurtured that church and educated that church. And I don't believe Peter had anything or if, uh, much of anything to do with it, because remember what P Paul said in his letter to Romans. Remember what he said? He says, he says I have made it my practice to preach the gospel not where Christ was named, lest I should build on any other man's foundation. So if Peter had gone to Rome and established a church in Rome, I don't think Paul would have had much to do with it, but Paul had a lot to do with the church at Rome. Paul wrote that great letter, which gives us a, an entire systematic theology. He wrote that to the Romans. He was in Rome, ministered to the church at Rome. He, most scholars believe that after he was arrested and finally released, he left, went back on another missionary trip, and he came back to Rome through Spain. And so Paul spent a lot of time in Rome. And there's no evidence at all that, that uh, Peter, Peter ever did much with the church at Rome, if anything, in the church at Rome. He, more than likely, that's where he died. But he had very little to do with the church at Rome. Let me ask you something. Let me raise another issue. Just think about it logically. Where in the New Testament, in any of the writings of the New Testament, does it give credit to Peter as being Pope of the church, the vicar of Christ? Nowhere. I mean, John talks about Peter. He talks about outrunning Peter. You know, he doesn't talk about Peter being the Pope. I mean, obviously, if Peter was the Pope, we, they would write something about Peter being the Pope, the head of the church. Now, you see James as the head of the church of Jerusalem, but nothing is ever said in the New Testament about Peter being the Pope. And so uh, I don't think that Peter was in Rome at all when he wrote this letter. But let's go back to 1 Peter. I have no doubt that he was actually in Babylon, the actual literal city of Babylon. And that makes sense. And let me tell you something about interpreting Scripture. Whenever you interpret Scripture, you always give preference to the literal trans meaning over the symbolic meaning. You always give preference, preference to the literal meaning, unless you're clued that it's symbolic. Now, the reason we know that Babylon in Revelation is symbolic because John precedes it with the word mystery Babylon. 
So it's a different city he's telling us. It's not the literal Babylon. And we get that clue. But there's no clue here in the text that Peter was writing from mystery Babylon. He was actually writing from a literal Babylon. Now that makes a lot of sense when you look at the first verse. Look at the first verse and he says, to the pilgrims of the diaspora in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now if you were to get a map and you were to look at a map, you would have these five provinces right in a circle. And just to the east of those provinces would be the province of Babylon. So Peter was in Babylon. It would make sense that he would list these just in order, just like he does. Just west of him, just west of him was Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. And so it makes a lot of sense, and I have no doubt that Peter was in uh, Babylon when he wrote this letter. Now, I I know that sounds maybe a little tedious, but you hear this all the time about Peter being the first pope, and one of the arguments that they make is from 1 Peter, and and I had to rebuke that or or refute that argument, so so that's why I spent so much time on it. As far as the date for the, the, the writing of the first epistle of Peter, uh, tradition tells us that, that Peter was crucified upside down, upside down in Rome in 67 A.D. And most scholars believe that he wrote this book just a few years before that, somewhere around 64 A.D. And I've already alluded to the purpose. I mean, what, what was Peter's purpose in writing this? Well, there, there was a lot of persecution going on uh, at that particular time against the church. I mean, they were being persecuted by the Romans, and, and the persecution was about to get really heavy. I mean, they were about to lose their life for their faith. And they were being persecuted by the Jews, and so they were scattered. They were being scattered all over this area. And so he sends this letter to encourage them and to remind them that as Christians, you can expect to be persecuted. You know, I have people that come to me sometimes, and they're being persecuted at work or something, and they act like, man, why is this happening to me? Well, praise God it's happening to you. And, and you should worry if it doesn't happen to you. I mean, because if, like I said before, those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, if you want to lift the name of Jesus up in this world, you will be persecuted. Now, the reason a lot of us are persecuted is because we're not lifting up the name of Christ. And so here they were, they were these pilgrims living in a very difficult land. And so what Paul wants to tell them and what he wants to do is encourage them. And really his underlying theme of this this book is that in the midst of difficulty, we have hope. We have great hope. And the reason we have great hope is because we are secure in Jesus Christ. We're absolutely secure in Jesus Christ. And no matter what happens to us, no matter how bad things get, God's going to see us through. We're not going to see ourselves through. God's going to see us through. He's going to carry us through. Man, we're, I, you know, I look out on our country today and I see the dark clouds brewing and I wonder just how long it is before we're going to face some serious persecution. Well, don't worry about it. You don't have to worry about it because you're not going to be the one that sees yourself through. God is going to see you through. That's what Peter wants to tell us in this book. And look at how he begins. I mean, look at how he begins. Go with me to 
to chapter number one and look at this power-packed theological treatise. In ver- he sounds like Paul here. I mean, he, 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 he certainly, again, wasn't some common uh, fisherman. If that's all he was, then that would make you wonder if he wrote this book. But we know Peter was more than that. We know he had studied under the Lord for three years. And listen to what he says in verse number two. He says, to the elect. Uh-oh. Now, I know some of you are probably going to want to leave at this point, but I didn't say that. Peter said that. To the elect, according to their good works, according to their own strength. No, according to the foreknowledge of God. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father. Let me change the word there because that preposition can be translated several ways. By the sanctification of the Spirit. I mean, how are we, how are we perfected in Jesus Christ? By the sanctification of the, of the Spirit for obedience. See, the Spirit sanctifies us for obedience through the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, you talk about something that will give you hope. In difficult times, there it is right there. You're about to go through a terrible trial uh, in a hostile land. I mean, you want hope? There is hope that you are elect according, look at that, according to the foreknowledge of God. That means that we were elected. He foreknew that he was going to elect us. That means that we were elected before we even knew about Jesus Christ. Before you even knew anything about Jesus Christ, you were elected by God in the foreknowledge of God. What were you elected for? You were elected to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. He foreknew that. He foreknew before you even knew Christ that he was going to sprinkle you with the blood of Jesus Christ. Well, so what? So what? What's it mean to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ? We're told in 1 John that the blood of Christ does what? It cleanses us from what? How much righteousness? All unrighteousness. It cleanses us from all unrighteousness. So I'm going through this terrible trial. I might not be handling myself too well. I might be saying some bad words or something. Well, the blood of Christ, I've been sprinkled with the blood of Christ, and it's going to cleanse me from all unrighteousness. We're told in Hebrews 10 by the blood of Christ, we've been perfected forever. By the blood of Christ. You don't perfect yourself. You've been perfected forever by the blood of Jesus Christ. And in Colossians, we learn that by the blood of Jesus Christ, how, how much of our sins have been forgiven? All our sins. Past, all our past sins. Present, all our present sins. What about our future sins? They've all been forgiven too by the blood of Jesus Christ because you've been sprinkled with the blood. Well, it's not only that. By the sprinkle, it's in the sprinkling of the blood that you have life because the life is in the blood. And he's going to tell us in, in the next chapter, in the first verse, that because of the blood, by the sprinkling of the blood, you've been given the divine seed, the divine nature. You understand that? No, you don't understand it. Do you believe that? Man, what a, I mean, you've been given, no matter what happens to you in this world, you've been given the divine nature and then that's not all it tells it it's through the sprinkling of the blood only through the sprinkling of the blood that we draw near to God 
You can't draw near to God if you haven't been sprinkled with the blood. Hebrews 10, in chapter 10, it says, let us draw near to God by the sprinkling of the blood. Paul says in Ephesians 2.13, you who were once far away, far off from God, have been brought near by the sprinkling of Christ's blood. It's only by that blood that you've been brought near. When did God decide to sprinkle you with that blood? He was going to sprinkle you with that blood before you even knew the Lord. Before you even knew the Lord. Do we earn that sprinkling? No. Do we do anything to keep that sprinkling on us? No. We're sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ because we have been elected. You have been elected. What's it mean to be elected? It means you've been chosen by God. You were chosen by God in his foreknowledge. Before you even existed, you were chosen by God to be sprinkled with his blood. Now let me ask you a question. Is God omniscient? Does he know all things? Yes, he knows all things. So let me ask you a question. Who does he choose to be sprinkled with his blood? Does he choose Losers and quitters or winners and finishers? Who do you think he chooses? Well, let me, let me put it this way. There's a Super Bowl that's going on later on this afternoon, some of you are aware of. Let me ask you a question. If you knew, if an angel came to you last night and said, I'm going to tell you, Carolina's going to win the Super Bowl and they're going to stomp Denver. Look at Roy, he's getting mad. Would you go out and take your money and bet everything you could on Denver? Roy would, that's right. Some people are that foolish. (laughs) Well, who are you going to bet your money on? You're going to put your money on Carolina because you know they're going to win and you know they're going to finish. And and when Denver's getting slaughtered, they're just going to quit. They're not going to hang in there. But if you know who's going to win and who's going to finish, that's who you're going to bet on. You'd be a fool to bet on Denver. And I say that, well, even if you didn't know, you'd be a fool to bet on Denver. <laughs> Is God a fool? So who does God pick? He picks winners. And he picks finishers. Well, wait a minute. Lord, how can you pick winners? And how can you pick the finishers? Because you know what? God is the one who makes us winners. And God is the one who makes us finishers. Look look at verse number four. We're we're jumping ahead. We're not going to get there today. But look at verse number four. How are we kept? I'm sorry. Verse number five. The first part of verse number five. How are we kept? Are we kept? Do we finish through our own hard work? How are we kept? By the power of God. That's how we're kept. He's the one who gives us the power to finish. And if he's chosen us in his foreknowledge and he's to be sprinkled with his blood, do you think he's going to let us quit? No. He didn't didn't put his money on us because we're quitters. He put his money on us because we're finishers. And the reason we're we're finishers is because he's going to keep us by his power. He makes us winners because he's the one who sanctifies us. He's the one who makes us holy. He's the one who makes us strong Christians. We don't make ourselves that.
It's him. We, we can't keep ourselves and make ourselves holy. Only the Spirit can do that. And that begins with the sprinkling of the blood. With the sprinkling of the blood that gives us the life of God along with the power to be obedient to God. That's why how you're obedient to God. Not in your own power, by the power of Jesus Christ. And it's all grace. It's all grace. Look at that last, that last sentence there. Grace to, you, grace to you and peace be multiplied. It is all of grace. Man, there's, if you can get that down, there's nothing, there's no greater truth than that to bring you comfort in tough times. That'll get you through tough, it'll help get you through tough times. To know that you're the elect, to know that you've been chosen. You've been chosen to be sprinkled with the blood. You've been chosen to be winners. You've been chosen to finish. When were you chosen? When were you chosen? Well, flip back with me a little few books, a passage we've looked at before, but go with me to the book of Ephesians. Let's find out when we were chosen. Look at chapter number one of Ephesians. Just a few books back. Galatians, Ephesians. Look at verse number, look at verse number four of chapter one. He chose us in him, in his foreknowledge, before the foundation of the world. You catch that? He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Of the world. Before there was an earth, before there was a universe, He chose you and me to be sprinkled with His blood. I mean, did He choose me when I was born? No. Did He choose me when I walked the aisle? And said, I'll give my life to Christ? No. Did he choose me when I decided to quit drinking, smoking, and fooling around? I never smoked, by the way. But I used that. Those are the big three, supposedly. When I chose to quit gossiping, when I chose to quit being covetous, when, when I chose to quit being an evil person, is that when he chose me? No, he chose me before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world. And let me ask you a question. If God is sovereign and he's omnipotent, he's all-powerful, and we know he is, what on this earth can stand in the way of you finishing the race? What on, the, on this earth could stand in the way of God bringing you to glory? Nothing. Not even yourself. You can't stand. If he chose you, God didn't, it's not stupid. He chooses winners. He chooses finishers. And if he chose you, he's going to give you the power to finish this race no matter how difficult it gets. That's why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he says, I am persuaded that neither life nor 
death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing that includes you shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He chose you. He elected you to be sprinkled with the blood. And I don't care how bad things get and how bad you think you are, how bad things look in this world or how bad you're being persecuted, he's going to see you through by his power. And just look, just, just finishing up at Ephesians there, look what else he says right there. He says, he chose us in him before the foundation world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons. He, before the foundation of the world, chose you to be his son, chose you to be his daughter. By Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Not according to our will, according to the good pleasure of his will he chose us. To the praise of the glory of his grace. Not to the praise of our works. To the praise and glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. And he does it all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin has left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. He chose me before the foundation of the world to be sprinkled with his blood and to make it all the way to glory. Now, I don't know about you, but I embrace the idea of that security. I embrace it. I know a lot of people don't. There are people in this room that don't. But I embrace it. You know the reason I embrace it? Because I know how desperately wicked my heart is. Still is. I still have my flesh, and I know how, how desperately wicked I am if I'm left on my own. I can't finish this race on my own. And if it were up to me to finish this pilgrimage, I wouldn't make it. You, you might be a big, tough person, and you might make it. I don't think so, not on your own. You're not going to make it. But you know what? For a lot of people, this idea of eternal security is repulsive. It's repulsive. It, it bothers them. It bothers them. There'll be people who leave this room talking about me. There he goes on that eternal security thing again. It's, it's repulsive to some people. And you know, after 25 years in ministry, I can tell you why it's repulsive. One word. Same problem I have, they have. One word, it's called pride. It's called pride. Because nobody likes the idea that we're hopelessly depraved sinners. Nobody likes that. Nobody likes the idea that we have desperately wicked hearts. Nobody likes the idea that we can't contribute anything to our salvation. We can't contribute anything to our sanctification. People don't like that idea. They don't like that. And the reason they don't like it, because of pride. We all think, and I'm, I'm telling you, even those that, uh, that believe in security, we still think somehow we're helping, and God has to knock us away from that sometimes. I mean, we all think that there's some redeeming quality in aiding us that's going to see, help see us through, but it's not there, I promise you. Whenever God removes his spirit, and it's his spirit that's going to see you through, you'll find out real quick how far you'll make it in this world. Get, let the devil get a hold of you and let God remove his spirit. 
You'll see just how desperately wicked you still are. It's the spirit, the divine seed that's been given to you. You were chosen to receive that seed. You were chosen to be sprinkled by the blood before the foundation of the world. Listen to what Luther says. I mean, he said it a lot more profoundly than I can. Listen to what he says. Human nature cherishes the thought that we, through our own strength, through our own free will, through our own good works, or through our own merit, or through the keeping of the law, can somehow atone for at least some of our sin. That somehow we can help God along the way with our eternal salvation. But listen to what he says, and I agree with this. This is the very thing that we need to let go of if we really want to receive God's mercy. If you really want to receive God's mercy and be blessed with God's spirit in a powerful way, you've got to let go of all of that. He says, if we deserve salvation or think we contribute to keeping our salvation, then salvation does not come by mercy. It comes by works. And Luther goes on to say, we only deserve wrath because of our great sin. But Jesus has shown us great mercy. Mercy. Abundant mercy. That's what he showed me. On the cross. But you know what? Even before he went on that cross, he knew my name. Even before he went on that cross, he had chosen me to be sprinkled with that blood that he was going to shed on that cross. Because he knew I'd never make it without that blood. He chose me to be sanctified by his spirit for obedience because he knew I would never be obedient without his Holy Spirit. Well, do we have a choice in all of this? Yes, we do have a choice. We'll talk about that next week. We certainly have a choice. But you know what? Even the choice comes from his great mercy. He knows how to get you to make that choice. I like to say he knows how to get you to say uncle. He can get you to say uncle if you're one of the chosen. If you're one of the chosen, he, he, can, he, he can do that. You know, it's only his great mercy that caused him to come to this earth and shed his blood for all our sins. He didn't come to this earth to shed his blood for our sins because he saw something good in you or me. That's not why he came. He did it because in his foreknowledge, he could see that you could be made good by his spirit and by his blood. And yes, I had a choice, but he gave me the grace to make that choice. Even my faith. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You know, if you can get this great doctrine down about the real hope that you have in Jesus Christ, it's going to help sustain you through anything that you go through. Because when you know that no matter what happens in this life, you're going to make it to heaven and you're going to be glorified. You can face any trial that comes your way. And you can live victoriously in this life. You know, I think it's great news that we don't have to rely on our own strength, but on his power. And that means I can endure anything that comes my way simply because I've been chosen. And if you haven't been chosen, it's because you never have chosen him. 
my challenge to you today, if you've never really chosen him, and I'm talking about when I'm talking about choosing him, I'm about choosing him on his terms. His terms is all of grace. And if you've never chosen him as your Savior, then choose him today. Choose him. All of him. All of grace. And you know what you'll find out when you, once you've chosen him? You'll find out you were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. Already chosen by him. Chosen to have a hope, not in yourself, but in his abundant mercy. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you so much for your grace that we have through Jesus Christ. Lord, I thank you so much for the security that we have through Jesus Christ, that we are elected. Lord, we are elected because you saw before the foundation of the world what, that you, through your Holy Spirit and through the sanctification process, that you could make us like Jesus Christ. Lord, we still got a long ways to go, but we know it's not our work, it's your work. Lord, all we have to do is just to continue to believe and to hang on to you, Lord, and, and, and enjoy the ride. And no matter how difficult it gets, we know that one day, we're going to be glorified forever in heaven with our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.